0: My guest today is Dr. Chris Bleakley, who is associate professor and head of the School of Computer Science at University College Dublin. Chris leads a research group focused on inventing novel algorithms for analyzing real world sensor data. His latest book, Poems That Solve Puzzles, The History and Science of Algorithms, tells the story of how algorithms came to revolutionize our modern computerized world. Welcome Chris.
1: Thank you uh, for the introduction and invitation, Gil. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, which I guess just came out, right? So poems that s- uh, solve puzzles. Um, very, interesting That's t- right. <laughs> very interesting title. Very interesting title. And you say the book is for people who know algorithms are important, but have no idea what they are. Um, and so it will be interesting, the first chapter of the book is uh, entitled Ancient Algorithms. Uh, and so perhaps we can start there. Uh, if you can give us a context uh, of you know, what you mean by algorithms and sort of a history uh, of how, how this term um, you know, came to be uh, well known, uh, not only in computer science, but also in any, any industry you can think of today.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So the term algorithm uh, refers to a well-defined sequence of steps that solve an information problem. Um, So an information problem could be something like sorting a list of names into alphabetical order. It could be performing a complex calculation. Um, And the algorithm is, if you like, a method for solving the problem. Mm. So. If you perform an algorithm manually, you manually perform the steps one after another, and if you follow the steps correctly, um, the information problem, such as sorting the words, is solved, is completed. Um, recently, algorithms have become important because they're the methods that computers apply to solve information problems. Right. Um, so. The step-by-step instructions that we as humans can read can be transformed into instructions that the computer can perform and the difference is the computers can perform those instructions at very high speeds um, and complete algorithms in amazingly short times right Uh, so that's what an algorithm is In, in the book i give the history of algorithms um, from ancient times to the most recent algorithms and cryptocurrency and uh, artificial intelligence. So um, I think the super- Yeah.
0: No. So 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 at the at the very broadest level, Chris, then uh, an algorithm is set of instructions. And so, one could imagine uh, from the inception of humans, we have had algorithms, right? So. They might have used, ancient humans might have used some sort of an algorithm to find a waterhole or a safe hunting area. Um, and so it, it is simply a set of instructions you can, you can follow or repeat uh, with a reasonable probability of getting an answer, right? Getting an expected answer.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, so as you say, you could imagine hunter-gatherers step by step searching for a water source or something like that. Yeah. Um, the earliest documented algorithms that we know of uh, date to around 3,000 to 4,000 years old mm. um, from ancient Babylon. Yeah. So the algorithms have been found uh, amidst the recorded writings of the ancient Babylonian society, they recorded their writings on clay tablets. So the writing was etched to symbols uh, using a reed stylus and pressed on wet clay. Hmm. And the clay was then allowed to dry in the sun. Now, most of the writings are concerned with things like taxation and running of the king's palaces. Um, But a portion um, of the clay tablets that have been found uh, describe the mathematics of ancient Babylon and the mathematics of ancient Babylon was quite algorithmically orientated. Uh, The writings describe a problem in the way that our own mathematics textbooks describe a problem. An example I provide in the book is calculating the volume, the dimensions of a water cistern, given uh, its volume height and the differences between its length and width. Um, So they set out the problem and then a series of step by step. Uh, instructions to to follow to give you the answer, which is the length and the width of the cistern in this case, and embedded in the writings as an example, a worked example that the reader can follow. Yeah. So these are the earliest recorded algorithms. Um, We think scholars think that these are a lot of these are actually from um, students notebooks. They they, they were making notes as they learned how to solve these problems. Yeah. The reason that these are so well preserved is because they were recorded in clay tablets, uh, which survived unlike Egyptian papyrus that was much more uh, perishable. And Mm. a lot of those writings have been lost Um, in the ancient Babylonian case. The tablets survived buried in the buildings in the the ruined cities. Um, But archaeologists started to discover those uh, in the uh, in the 18th and 19th century and eventually the language of the tablets was deciphered and this discoveries these discoveries are being made uh, around the algorithms uh, hmm. of ancient
0: babylon so so it seems like uh, so this started 3000 4000 years ago it seems like we have a natural tendency <laughs> toward um uh toward documenting this in in some uh some systematic fashion, so like you said what 's the problem? what are the steps you can take, and those steps are in some specific sequence, and if you do that over and over again, you will get exactly the same results uh, at the end of it um and so obviously this has very high practical utility um right so uh so So do we know um, one could argue language is sort of an algorithm, too, right?
1: Um, Yeah. So algorithm is a language is a means for communicating information from one place to the next. Um, So I'm not sure I call language as such an algorithm. it it's it's more a means of communicating um i suppose you could consider the encoding of knowledge uh into uh a language as being steps that could be considered um uh, repeatable yeah uh but i suppose the language itself wouldn't wouldn't be an algorithm yeah
0: so these clay tablets um do they do they have some language in it or is just uh just, you know, some symbolism that uh, that we're interpreting.
1: Uh, It's a fully formed language uh, written on the tablets. So it's the language is Akkadian. Um, uh, So it comes from the Akkadian Empire. Um, The the symbols used are tuned to the marks made by the reed stylus. So it's called uh, cuneiform nowadays, mm-hmm. um, and, which means web sh- wedge shaped in Latin. So uh, when you press the clay, uh, the uh, stylus into the clay tablet, you get this kind of triangular, long, thin, triangular wedge shape marking so that the, the, the symbols um, reuse these wedge shapes in, in various patterns. Um, mm. So if you look at a tablet, it's 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 very beautifully arranged. It's very regular. Everything's in kind of a grid. You can see a grid pattern for these symbols, um, uh, and each symbol then is a slightly different pattern um, of these wedge shapes. Mm. Uh, but it's it's a fully fully formed language um, in the sense that that the symbols correspond uh, to 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 uh, are 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 concatenated to create words and it's fully formed words and mathematics and numbers and expressions um,
0: yeah yeah and so 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 if you um, um, move forward in time in the second chapter, uh, you talk about the ever expanding circles and more recent times um, how mathematics came to really dominate the field then right?
1: Yeah, so in the book, I trace the uh, movement of the idea of algorithms um, out of Babylon into ancient Greece. And the ancient Greek philosophers and mathematicians um, added their own discoveries. Um, Knowledge was then passed um, to a number of centers in Europe, primarily the library at Alexandria in northern Uh, Egypt um, which preserved and extended the knowledge um, of algorithms and mathematics in general the uh, uh, the survival of the a lot of the mathematical ideas and algorithms um, into modern times was made possible by uh, work conducted in the the in the golden Islamic age um, Hmm. by scholars working in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, um, particularly uh, Al-Qaizmi, who wrote a number of key texts on our current decimal number system on Hmm. what is now algebra Um, and the style that uh, he used in the writings was very algorithmic, it's a very algorithmic way of describing the methods Um, and his books were later translated into Latin and became a conduit um, for these ideas into the West. Um, In parallel, algorithms were developed in China um, and um, the One area I concentrate in the book is the use of algorithms to calculate pi, which is the ratio uh, between the circumference um, of a circle and its diameter. Yeah. So we we know that pi now is a ratio of about uh, 3.1 and it's an an irrational number. Um, So you can never write it down exactly. It, writing it down requires an infinite number um, of decimal places of, of uh, to get it accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So this has become a never-ending quest in mathematics to find the most accurate and uh, version of the number pi possible. Um, so in the book, I, I talk about the algorithms that have been used over the years to estimate the value of pi Hmm. Um, and it gives some indication of how mathematics spread and developed over the years the babylonians had an estimate of pi uh, of that was 25 divided by 8 which is roughly 3.125 which is accurate to two digits yeah the greek uh, philosopher Archimedes improved on that uh, with a famous algorithm that uh, stood the test of time. It was the most algorithm, accurate algorithm for about uh, a thousand years um, and the same algorithm was adopted in China and it was actually in China that, uh, it came, that uh, scholars came up with um, uh, a very accurate version um, of pi in the fifth century, uh, that was to stand as the most accurate estimate um, to, until about the seventeenth century. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, and so 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 further forward in time enters the computer. Uh, and so, what um, what would be considered to be the sort of the first computer, um, <laughs> if that word can be defined properly?
1: Yeah, so the difficulty here, as you say, is in the definition of a computer. Yeah. Um, There was attempts uh, by Charles Babbage to build a mechanical computer um, in England, um, but those failed due to the, um, the imprecise manufacturing of the mechanical components at the time. Um, the first, what I would call, uh, th- there was a number of computers developed around the same time um, during World War II. Um, and you really have to look at the details of them to decide whether they're a computer in the modern sense or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few elements are required in a computer um, that distinguish it from Uh, an automatic calculator an automatic calculator will perform a sequence of calculations one after another Um, if you add programmability to that, so the Mm. ability to change the list of instructions that the calculator is performing, um, you move a little bit closer to a computer so Mm. in a computer you can alter the list of of instructions to be performed and, and that makes it Computer general purpose in that uh, in that it can do uh, perform a variety of tasks just by changing the instructions. Okay, so you ha- you have a machine that can perform automatic calculations. You have a machine that you add programmability to. The last piece then that needs added in is the decision to ma- is the ability to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So a true computer is able to inspect the values that it has calculated and decide on different courses of actions, depending on those values. Um, So it is able to uh, choose between possible lists of instructions based on calculated values. Mm -hmm. So you need all of these properties um, to be uh, defined as a computer. Um, And during World War Two, we had um, the group in Bletchley Park, which is the code breaking center in the UK, with Mm -hmm. which Alan Turing was famously involved, um, that developed computers, um, early computers to calculate, um, to to make large numbers of calculations to help break the German codes. Mm -hmm. Um, Their computers, their early computers, um, weren't programmable. Um, they performed the same sequence of operations one after the yeah. other. Yeah. One of their machines, Colossus was, um, programmable and was close to, uh, a general purpose, what you would nowadays call a computer. It was electronic. Um, of course it was huge at the time, the size of a room. Um, mm-hmm. but it was electronic and it was able to, to, uh, process lists of instructions. At the same time as that development was happening there was uh Zeus in Germany who was yeah. developing he was an inventor and developed a series of computers starting off with his first computer which he built in his parents' um apartment in berlin mm. um he his his approach was electromechanical uh components um mm-hmm. and his series he gradually added more uh, performance to the computers that he designed and moved from a Z1 uh, computer to a Z4 computer at the end of the war. Now the the thing at the end, he was hampered by um, allied bombing and the the impact of the the war on Berlin um, in the later stages of the war. And it's, unclear how well the, the Z4 was really working. Um, mm. The Z3 didn't have the full uh, decision-making capability. The Z4 did, but it wasn't really fully working. So, mm. really, I think we need to turn to uh, America to look at um, the first operational computer. You know, there were these yeah, types so... that were close, but I, I think it was the uh, ENIAC in uh developed in the university of pennsylvania that was it was the first operational computer and uh, i i think that really is the became the blueprint for for future devices
0: yeah so so to put this in context uh alan turing um who everybody everybody knows was born in 1912 uh, so it's amazing how far we have come <laughs> in just just 100 years or so uh, and so if, if you use the the term uh, a programmable machine that 's able to make decisions," uh, clearly that excludes uh, many of the machines of industrial revolution. Uh, it could even exclude many of the modern uh, machines, um, obviously calculators or you know even some uh, some machines that we call computers are not necessarily computers in that sense right they don 't make any decisions. And so 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 yeah so uh kind of moving forward in time um the the University of Pennsylvania uh and what is what is that invention called It's
1: the ENIAC, um, ENIAC. so yeah it was developed um to calculate uh, ballistic charts for the US army um mm. so the US army um had a team of mathematicians um Primarily female mathematicians due to the demands for uh, males uh, enlisting in the army. Um, So a team of female mathematicians that were calculating um, the shell trajectories for artillery pieces. um, And the shell trajectories are related to the particular uh, artillery piece the angle at which it's being set, the wind condition, where the target is, the distance to the target, the height of the relative height of the target. So there's a lot of factors in, in trying to determine what the right angle um, is for firing your, your artillery piece. Um, mm. The mathematicians produced list tables that the field officers referred to in selecting their, their, their angles for their um, and the sighting um, of their artillery pieces. So producing these tables manually was very time consuming Um, Mm -hmm. and a team in the University of Pennsylvania, where the uh, mathematicians were doing their calculations, realized that um, they could speed things up greatly by uh, building an electronic computer to do the calculations. Um, That work was funded by the US Army um, and working versions of the ENIAC computer uh, were available um, at the end of the war. Um, They were never used for ballistic calculations during the (laughs) war, uh, Mm. but immediately after the war they were actually used for calculations um, for the Manhattan Project, the design Mm. of the atomic bomb.
0: And so there was some mathematical uh developments as well. So uh there was some Monte Carlo technique uh that came to the fore. Um there were some practical uh applications such as attempts to forecast uh forecast weather and other uh phenomena that there's a lot of uncertainty in them. Uh and then uh some of those mathematics, even though it worked at small scale, uh, sort of break down. Uh, because of because of chaos and and other other uh, phenomena, and so mathematics was sort of developing alongside the machine, and uh, and and uh, and then we come to what is now largely called artificial intelligence. Um, we will take a yeah. quick
1: break. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, that's true. Yeah. So the advent of the computer meant that um, algorithms uh, that weren't in any way practical before could now be contemplated. Um, They could be done because thousands, hundreds of thousands of steps could be done uh, in a very short period of time. So the introduction of the computer has led to an explosion in the variety and complexity of algorithms that have been developed. Um, so you, you touched on the Monte Carlo method, which is the foundation stone uh, for simulations and even modern weather forecasting. Um, it allows uh, the computer to try out uh, a subset of random scenarios, play those out um, as if they had occurred in the real world, but uh, modeling the phenomena using numbers and then to bring those samples together uh, as an ensemble and make a kind of a a global estimate of what's likely to uh, happen even Mm. uh, in a very complex system.
0: Right, right. We'll take a quick break, Chris, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about um, a a quick introduction to artificial intelligence and its history, uh, and then we go into where we are. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at com. So we are back. Um so chris uh, we are talking about your book poems that solve puzzles and uh, it is uh, it is a history of uh, computing algorithms uh, from maybe 4000 years ago to the status quo and maybe some speculation into the future and uh, we talked about sort of the early um, early developments in this area um, and and sometime in the mid 1900s, uh, 1940s, 1950s, uh, this term emerged, right? Artificial intelligence It's a very confusing term. Even now, people have you know different definitions for it. Um, I tend to believe that um, we don't really have any artificial intelligence yet. Um, we will talk a little bit about that. Artificial general intelligence. It's probably the only a i should be called a i everything else is sort of expert systems uh, people have different opinions around it but um uh, but we talked about alan alan turing a little bit um so so there was another another person um who was also an early uh, a i pioneer right christopher, christopher Starkey. yeah uh Christopher
1: Strachey. um so At the end of the war, uh, Turing moved to the National Physics Laboratory uh, in London and started to work with a team into building uh, their own computer. Um, Those efforts uh, were frustrated and and Turing left the NPL, uh, spent a Year in Cambridge and then went to Manchester, the University of Manchester. Mm-hmm. The University of Manchester, um, seated by a Bleshley Park alumnus, um, uh, had developed their own computer and had actually um, outstripped the NPL efforts. What uh, is, what is NPL, NPL again? Oh. It's the National Physical Laboratory in London. Okay, uh, yeah. Turing had joined, and they, they attempted to to build a computer. Yeah. Um, the After Turing left, the NPL produced a computer called the Pilot ACE, which is a simplified version of Turing's design. Mm. Um, and it was at that point in time that Christopher Strachey uh, entered the scene. He was a teacher um, at Harrow College, at Harrow School, um, mm and he was a graduate um, of cambridge um he heard about computers and was interested in programming them and he actually requested the national physical laboratory could he come along and uh do some programming as a hobby yeah um at the time very few programmers were available and they accommodated him um he heard He did some programming on their device, but he heard about the Manchester computer was more advanced, Hmm. um, got in touch with Turing, who he knew from his university days um, and got some time working um, on the Manchester computer. Uh, It turned out he was a a natural programmer. Uh, Even Turing was impressed by his ability to write code. Um, One of the projects that he undertook was to write Uh, a program which generated love letters Uh, so what he (laughs) did was create uh, a program that used templates of love letters so it would be things like um, my adjective 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 noun verb um, Mm -hmm. structures grammatical structures would be coded into these templates and the computer Mm -hmm. would randomly choose adjectives to slot into the various positions yeah. So, for example, uh, he wrote a love letter purportedly from the Manchester University computer, which started "Honey, dear, my sympathetic affection beautifully attracts yours, affectionate enthusiasm, <laughs> etc." Yeah. So you can see how it constructed um, uh, new sentences. It was slightly creative in constructing new sentences. Um, so that was probably the first artificial intelligence program um, mm-hmm. where it. it it's, the, as you said, the, the the definition of artificial intelligence is is fraught with different. Um, mm. The best definition I I think is from, or the accepted definition is from 1955, uh, from a researcher um, uh, called John McCarthy. Um, mm. He defined artificial intelligence as a computer program uh, completing a task that would otherwise be called intelligent if uh, a human were so behaving. So here mm. we have a letter being written by a computer. Um, you would say that writing requires intelligence. So, hence, you would argue that a computer writing a letter is an artificial intelligence. Mm. But you s- the way the computer is doing things is completely different. The algorithm is completely different to what's going on in the brain. It's just as if uh, the task will be completed by an intelligent being. Strachey went on to work on uh, a drafts program or checkers in the US as the board game where you move counters around a a black and white checkerboard. Mm. Um, He went on to work in that, which was another uh, more advanced uh, form of artificial intelligence where the computer was trying to play the game um, of checkers as if it were a human player. So again, trying to write a program that uh, performs a task that we would otherwise say was uh, required intelligence. So
0: is he the one who, um,
1: who came up with the term machine reasoning? Um, no, it was actually um, another researcher yeah. um, who also tackled the... Uh, checker playing problem Mm -hmm. Um, it was an American called Arthur Samuel Um, he was working, worked for IBM um, on developing a program that would play checkers and he actually initially he thought he'd been bested by Strachey, he read about Strachey's work he'd been working on this problem of playing chess for for some years Uh, um, and he read Strachey's first paper in the topic and felt that uh, he'd been superseded Mm. but then he realized that Strachey's program wasn't a particularly good checkers player and Strachey found uh, proposed and developed new ways uh, to improve his checker player and this was the first um, occurrence of machine learning which is now used very extensively <laughs> right. um, in products uh, from Apple and Google. Yeah, but this was remember this was the nineteen fifties. This was the mid fifties. Right, and what Arthur Samuel's uh, idea was that rather than tell the computer um, how to play checkers, you would be better to Program in the basics and let the computer figure out mm-hmm. um, what the best moves were to make.
0: So they were so his
1: idea of machine. Yeah,
0: there, I was just going to ask. So they were initial ideas of what we now call reinforcement learning. Then,
1: that's exactly correct. Yeah. The, the primitive ideas of reinforcement learning were there in the nineteen fifties. Yeah. Um, so he had two versions of his program play against each each other. The versions, the programs identified features on the board, so p- patterns of checkers that were potentially good or bad, okay. and he used um, a scoring algorithm um, to um, uh, compare different positions. So a scoring algorithm detected these features in the board, gave some scores for the features, and told them up and came with an overall score for the position. So the computer would choose... The next, the move that would lead to the position with the highest score, its highest probability of winning. Where the machine learning came in is the weights uh, applied to the scores for each uh, position feature Mm. uh, were determined by the computer playing against itself. Right. Um, and over many iterations, it figured out what the best uh, things were. Best strategy. For the scores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. In effect, it gave it the best strategy. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, so you see in the book, uh, in 1959, Newell, Shaw, and Simon introduced a new program. So what's the, what's the importance of that?
1: So this was logic theorist, yeah. um, and they used it to generate proofs um, of um logical uh, theor- uh logical proofs so um a lot of people will be used to algebraic proofs in mathematics uh using uh, normal numbers so if you're told that x plus y equals three and uh x equals Two, you may be able to work out what y equals. So you can step-by-step perform a proof to to figure out what the values are. You can do the same sort of thing with logical statements. So These are true-false values. Mm. Um, um, So they simplified the problem by concentrating on true-false logic equations. Um, And they developed a computer program to generate proofs for logical uh, relationships relationships between logical equations Mm. and the computer generated these by doing a search. It basically tried every possible manipulation of the equation um, and gradually using the search it it generated a lot of possible uh, chains of substitutions and transformations Mm. Uh, but over time it, it was able to by trying lots of possibilities, it was able to find a paths or chains of transformations between a desired starting point and a desired ending point in yeah. terms of the equations. So, um, yeah. So it was able to do yeah. the math. It was able to reproduce the mathematical proofs uh, in um, key text um, that was produced um by well-known mathematicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so they felt that this was the first um, occurrence of artificial intelligence. Now, a strategy was before them, but the problem that they were uh, tackling was, was, was very difficult. Um, yeah. It was uh, producing mathematical proofs, something up until then that only uh, humans could do. Right, right.
0: Yeah, so you talked about this before. So you you said the first computer program to display the ability to learn uh, was unveiled on public television on Feb 24th, 1956. And that was Arthur Samuel of IBM. And in 1959, Samuel finally published a paper describing his new checkers program. And the title was Some Studies in Machine Learning Using the Game of Checkers. So So the jargon that gets used today, much of that has been in play um, in the 1950s, uh, even with the crudest of of computers um, that were available then. Uh, And then uh, there was a lot of hope about this area called artificial intelligence, uh, but it didn't quite pan out the way, right? So people call it now the AI winters. Uh, is that the 60s that we call it?
1: Yeah, so it was the late 1950s and 1960s. Um, yeah. So these early breakthroughs in computing, um, I think, led researchers to be over-optimistic about what was possible in artificial intelligence. So we you know, we had uh, prominent figures like Marvin Minsky, uh, who's head of AI research at MIT, saying in 30 years we'll have machines whose intelligence is comparable to man. So he said that in 1968. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So we've missed that target by by quite a ways already. Um, Even Turing said by the end of the century we'll have machines that will converse like humans. Um, Why were people so far off the mark? Um, I, I, I think some of it was... Because computers could solve mathematics, yeah, um, the people involved in the research felt mathematics was the pinnacle, and that more mundane tasks would would easily be uh, solved. It turns out that mundane tasks like walking, running, recognizing objects are are very difficult, right, and the only reason that they seem Easy to humans is that a large portion of our brains are actually given over to processing visual and auditory information, hmm. um, whereas doing mathematics is not a, a natural thing for us to, to to do. from a from a from a you know evolutionary perspective, um, so um, I think I think the researchers at that stage were were just taken in by the ability to do mathematics. And this assumption that everything else would, would follow in, in re- the real world in dealing with real world uh, signals such as uh, images and signs and speech, uh, there's huge variation and, mm. and computers until very recently have been very poor at dealing with those levels of variation.
0: Right right yeah, as an aside, Chris, um, uh, toward the back end of that winter, um I was in graduate school and was working on what was then you know one of the first uh, we used to call it expert systems, which is probably the right term, I would argue even now uh, for education, and the idea there was to get a uh, get a graduate student to interact with a computer. Uh, and really pro- the computer responds with uh, ideas. Um, and so this is a design problem in engineering. And the goal was to develop the intuition of the student by interacting with the computer. Um, and so you want to find the optimum design that's a least cost design. A fresh graduate student doesn't have any experience or intuition to do that. So it starts in a random point and the computer gives that person guidance as to which direction to head. And by multiple experiments in sequence, uh, the student gets to the the optimum point. And if you play that game many, many times, um, we found that the student you know develops an intuition. So rather than going to the field and making mistakes, they could make mistakes on the computer. Uh, and so, <laughs> just like you're <laughs> you're describing. Uh, again, in engineering, we had great hopes of this type of technologies really making a making a dent in education and other areas, um, and and not a lot happened um, probably because the computing infrastructure wasn't really there to make very practical applications. Um, and so I want to sort of fast forward, you have in the book, you talk about the advent of internet in the 90s, Google in 2000s, and Facebook uh, later. So these are uh, probably areas that people are familiar with. So I want to come to sort of the, the status quo today. Um, so, so where are we now uh, in terms of what people think about artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah, so things have changed radically. So, the AI winters, um, the funding was cut for AI research projects because so many of them failed and government agencies re- refused to put in more money. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of researchers gave up. Uh, what's really changed things is in the last 15 years is um, the amount of compute power. Um, hmm is now sufficient to run artificial neural networks so up until about 15 years ago artificial networks uh artificial neural networks were too small to deal with any real world tasks Um, when the compute power was sufficient researchers could start to use large artificial neural networks and large artificial neural networks can really tackle real-world problems, complex real-world problems. So artificial neural network,
0: yeah, so I was just going to say artificial neural network is really an attempt um, at uh, what we believe how the brain is working in uh, in mathematics and on computers. And it was first coined uh, by Belmont Farley and Wesley Clark at MIT, uh, again in mid-1950s. Uh so again artificial neural network now largely called deep learning by one you know some of the the later companies uh has been in play from the from the 1950s
1: Yes the, the the basic concept um of an artificial neural network has has been around for a long time um this idea that you can very approximately model the behavior of a neuron a single cell in the brain Using uh, mathematics, and you can simulate that in a computer. Um, has, as you say, been been in play since the 1950s. Um, yeah. The the two the two things that uh, were missing in the 50s were one was an algorithm for training the artificial network to perform a particular task, mm-hmm. and that was solved by the introduction of back propagation in the 1970s and 80s, um, and then. Once that was available, the networks were, were too small. Computer power wasn't good enough. It was really uh, 2005 that computers were good enough to, to simulate large enough numbers of net neurons that we could tackle uh, real-world problems. And and that's where the term deep learning was coined. The yes. networks were, were deep enough. In other words, they contained sufficient layers to do really useful tasks. Um, so where we are now is is... A lot of the research that's been done is is applying those deep learning ideas in all sorts of fields. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just the speed of the computers, it's the data sets that can be provided. So if you want to train a neural network to recognize objects, uh, you can now use a very large neural network, of very deep, lots of layers, uh, 10, 12 layers, uh, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of neurons in it, um, and you can give it examples of hundreds of thousands of uh, images of objects, and yeah. it can use machine learning to learn uh what the correct settings are for the neural network so that it can recognize the objects um, yeah the so, The
0: so. irony there, Chris, is that. You know, in some sense, uh, I want to get your insight into this. So, if you if you provide labeled cases, you know, finding cat against the dog type uh, experiments, if you have a large number of data points, as you say, the computer is able to uh, able to recognize that over time. Uh, but the human doesn't actually require a very large number of <laughs> data sets uh, to get to the same level of intelligence. So it, it seems to me that, you know, I would call it rote learning, the rote learning process that is embedded in in deep learning networks. Um, can we really call them intelligence, um, you know, compare that to human intelligence based on the definitions that, that was existing in the 50s?
1: I think if you take McCarthy's definition, it, it is artificial intelligence in the sense yeah. that you have a computer programming performing a task, program performing a task that uh, would otherwise be considered as requiring human tele- intelligence. So it meets that definition. The problem here is that the popular concept of what artificial intelligence is, is completely wrong. Yeah. So the the the, the, the popular concept of AI is uh, a computer behaving in some way like the human brain and mm-hmm. doing things like the human brain. The computer is is, is not thinking in the way that a, a human brain is thinking. I mean, we can say that artificial neural networks are a mathematical abstraction um, mm-hmm. of the human brain at a very high level, but we're, if you like we're modeling the periphery of the human brain, you know, the very simple structures that are just behind the eyes and just behind the ears. And it's maybe a rough approximation of that. It, it's, it's not really, uh, thinking in, in a way that we would, uh, associate with, with humans. Yeah. So we're, we're using a very mechanistic calculation, um, to perform a task that otherwise would take human intelligence. Uh, we're, we're not yet at the point where programs are uh, thinking intelligently in anything like the way that we're thinking.
0: Yeah, so are we on a path? Uh, it seems like there was some sort of a divergence, if I understand this correctly, in the 70s and 80s. Um, back propagation that you mentioned um, as some tools arrived uh, to as you say uh, create a mathematical abstraction of people incorrectly uh, believe as as the way that the brain is working now a lot of things are on that path it it sounds to me so the large companies can throw a lot of memory and a lot of computing power behind that uh, in an attempt to show practical applications um, but it is not; it's not at all like you say uh, how a brain functions. So this is where I think you know the term artificial intelligence. I I, I believe is is incorrectly used, and it has two two problems with it. One is um, more investments go into it on the premise that it can get better. Um, and the other is sort of the, the confusion it's creating in the marketplace about what is meant by artificial intelligence. On the former, Chris, I want to get your view on this. Um, my hypothesis is that we are going down a path that will never, um, never get to what we want to get to, which is artificial intelligence.
1: What is what is your perspective on that? Um... So there's a couple of major research projects ongoing in US and EU, EU that are trying to better understand how the human brain works. Yeah. Um, so using the most recent technologies to really analyze the, the behavior of the brain. And I, I think that, that those projects are likely to reveal that the models that we're currently using in the computer are very coarse and very approximate uh, versions of what's really going on. So we, we may see some transfer um, of knowledge from how things are working in the biological brain uh, into improved artificial neural networks. Um, but. I think a lot of what we as humans associate with intelligence is higher order thinking, um, right. you know, analyzing, thinking in your head, listening to what you're saying, thinking in your head rather than reacting to things. So yeah. a lot of what I say, a lot of what's being done at the moment is really just peripheral functionality, um, reacting to things. So there's a, there's a big gap there as how, yeah. how do you get to this next level um, and it's really not clear, uh, what the path is there. Um, is it refinement or major changes? I, I think it's probably both. Um, I think refinement of the models for individual neurons, but also radical changes in the structures. Um, you know, the, the brain you, human brain, you'd have to think is, is a network of networks. Yeah. Um, so, so we're we're at the moment we're we're looking at single peripheral networks. Like, how do all these networks in the brain work with each other um, to generate this higher level of thinking? That's really not understood at all at this stage. Um, yeah. So, I, I think the innovations are are going to be um, in um, how. Large networks interact with each other um, as opposed to this low level we're at at the moment, which is really just using a a large-ish network. Now you start putting them together and your compute demands go uh, through the roof. How do you deal with that?
0: Yeah, Uh, um, I see two symptoms, Chris, that um, that tells me or or that uh, I believe this is the case that we need to philosophically change the design path. The first symptom is we know humans don't need a lot of data (laughs) to to actually get to an intelligent decision. It doesn't require 60 million uh, label cases to learn something. Uh, so that, that's the first symptom. The second symptom is uh, really about creativity, which is creativity is spontaneously emerging. We don't see humans getting creative by rote learning. Um, uh, so creative people actually don't take much time. If you, ta- if you use time as a proxy for computing power, um, you could then test that. Do I put a person in a room and give that person 50 years does that person create a creative piece of work? I would argue either he cre- he or she creates it in fifteen seconds, or not, you know, or, or not, <laughs> right? And so, so these the symptoms that we see comparing humans to existing quote unquote artificial intelligence uh, tells me that um, we might be mathematically on a on a wrong track. I might be too pessimistic. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. So this is one of
1: the big problems um, is the amount of training data that's needed. Um, I, I, it, it, it's fine uh, for things like handwriting recognition, object recognition, um, language translation. Um, we can actually use enough compute power um, to figure out neuron neural networks that can do those jobs. But you're right, humans Humans don't need that many examples. Humans are much better at generalizing. So yeah. we can take a small number of examples and generalize um, a solution. Uh, whereas um, computers need all of the huge number of examples, they can't generalize as well. So the question then is, how are humans doing the generalization? Mm. Um, we... And, and and there's there's the other side of the generalization is, is overfitting. So if you get yeah. too many examples, you can tune to just particular cases um, as opposed to the general identifying the general pattern. And humans yeah. don't seem to do that either. They don't overfit and they don't need that many examples. So mm. how is that working? It, it, it the way that. This is being used in computers at the moment is to synthetically generate more examples from mm. uh so let's say that you take uh 10, images um you can then mix and match them and distort them and change the color patterns and generate uh another hundred thousand images from those um and that's generating a synthetic data set um mm. Is the human brain doing something like that is it Is it generating synthetic data um or is it is it, is the human brain got a kind of a general problem solver that it allows it to generalize to take hmm. a few is something completely different going on um I oh, yeah. suspect something completely different' going on. I don't think the human brain is is putting in the amount of effort i mean if you look at the power consumption of the human brain it's it's very very low. In comparison Hmm. to modern supercomputers so i I think the human brain is somehow um generalizing using some um, capacity generalization capacity that it can use across a range of problems Um, and that we haven't we haven't figured that out at all in in the artificial network community right there are there right. are some interesting paths in, in generative adversarial networks and things like that but i think i think we're still a long ways off figuring that one out
0: yeah so so in conclusion chris um if you look forward 5 10 years um based on the path that we are on uh, there there are more innovations in engineering quantum computing is is sort of hovering um we don't know how long that's going to take Uh, There are some applications like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin uh, that, again, requires a lot of computing power. So assuming the path that we are on is going to be the path that we would continue to pursue, which tells me that more computing, more memory, um, more sort of brute force applications, where do you think we will end up, let's say, five years, 10 years from now? There was a lot of talk about the um, the singularity <laughs> just five years ago, um, by twenty twenty seven. Um, so 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 what 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 are your expectations looking forward five ten years?
1: Yeah, I I I think the singularity idea is flawed. Um, the singularity idea is projecting forward uh, compute power, and when does mm-hmm. compute power become similar to brain compute power? Um, I, I think in terms of that metric, we may be close to having raw power comparable to the brain over the next few years. Now, that's somewhat limited by a slowdown in Moore's law. So Moore's law says Mm. that um, the uh, number of transistors per square millimeter in a computer chip um, doubles every 18 months. Um, and that was true in the 1970s, but has now slowed down. We're now maybe looking at uh, more like 24 months or more. Um, yeah. And it becomes increasingly difficult to shrink those transistors. So we're starting to slow down off that curve. Uh, so that may push out what what's being called the singularity by, you know, five, ten years or something like that. But uh, mm. we, it does look like we're reasonably close to matching the compute power. But I think what we're missing completely here is the algorithms. Um, mm. We we may be able to do as many base calculations as the human brain in a, in a supercomputer. But if we don't know what the algorithms are, um, it won't have the same effect. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we're a long ways off figuring out what the algorithms are. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. You know, as you mentioned, in the 50s and 60s, um, we would have thought that the the constraint really is the hardware. Um, Mm. We couldn't have envisioned the type of computing power that we have today um, that fast. And we were were overconfident in software uh, Mm. because it is mathematics, it's algorithms, and we are pretty good at doing that. Now the problem uh, appears to have reversed <laughs> in the in the two thousands, which is uh, we we continue to seem to do okay with the computing power increase, uh, but the mathematics uh, appears to be plateauing at least from my perspective. Do you see it that way? Um,
1: yeah. Well, there's a, there's a problem here in that. Um... The capacity for writing software, the the beauty of artificial neural networks is the the basic unit is quite simple and you just replicate it, uh, the basic unit, tens of thousands of times. And then machine learning, you just give it examples and it figures out itself how to solve the problem. So you've taken the manual coding out of the loop here. You know, you, you have a basic unit, you have a training algorithm, You give it lots of examples it figures out how to solve the problem you're not trying to solve the problem yourself Um, Mm -hmm. but the difficulty comes if that basic unit isn't quite right if the interconnection of those basic units aren't quite right you have to go in and and re-engineer this basic system so uh, that's what i mean about if the algorithms aren't right if 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 the basic um, architecture um, and the basic models aren't good enough to give us this artificial general intelligence. Then that's all going to have to be reengineered, and you know it 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 it's likely to be something that requires human ingenuity. Um, we won't be able to let um, uh, there won't be sufficient compute power to 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 uh, explore this space, this design space fully um just Mm -hmm. using automated means um so we may well be in this position where um the hardware has the capability um but we haven't yet figured out um the algorithms that are needed to exploit that hardware so as to give us something approximating artificial general intelligence so you yeah. I, I you're right, I agree with what you say it's 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 the the human ingenuity side that's um the limiting factor here the compute resources are vast now. Um it's, right. it's about humans trying to figure out how to use those and it becomes increasingly complex the, the The more complex a piece of software becomes, the harder it becomes to understand and the harder it becomes to develop it Um right. and particularly when you're talking about hardware that with parallelism where multiple things are happening at the same time, that's very hard for humans to understand. Um, mm. So uh, I think you're right. The, the The hardware is not the bottleneck anymore. The the human programmers and designers are the bottleneck.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Chris. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank and you very uh, much. Good luck with, I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, yeah. discussion.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gil. Bye.
0: scientificsense.com